Good morning, Exchange. We are in Exodus chapter 23 this morning. So if you want to turn there with me, uh, we're going to continue our thoughts and series, just diving into uh, the Word here and seeing what the Lord has to show us. I don't know about you, but for me, Exodus has been challenging, not just to teach, uh, but also just in my own heart, my own life. There's a lot of things here that that we struggle with through the week uh, as we read, as we pray, uh, really as we long to apply. Uh, I hope that that has been the case for you as well. Our hope is that Exchange uh, is a place where we actually live out the words on this page rather than just to gather and to hear them. And so I would encourage you as you uh, look through these things, as you think through these things, as you maybe take notes throughout the week, maybe pray and ask the Lord how he would have you live these things out. Uh, Also, I would encourage you to sign up for that prayer training as you saw uh, some really great testimony about that. Uh, You can do that if you have a device and you're connected to the Church Center app. Uh, that is available on registration. So on the Church Center app, there's a lot of great things. On the homepage, uh, even now, there's a place called Sermon Notes. And if you tap that, it'll take you to the Version app and it'll give you all the passages we use today uh, with notes and different things. That's available all week for you to reference and go back and check and make sure the things we say are the things that God says. Uh, that's really important. There's another button underneath that that says Volunteer, and that's a great place for you to click and to look at some of the spots that we could use some help. Uh, and then if you click on the bottom, there's registrations, uh, and there's a, a link there for prayer uh, training, and I would encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, let us know that you're going to be there so we can plan for that. Um, would you guys pray with me this morning as we dive into uh, the Lord's Word? Father, without your Spirit, all of these words, um, at best, are just difficult. Uh, With your Spirit, Lord, we have the opportunity uh, to actually live out uh, what you say is important and life-changing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, quiet our minds. Lord, I, I know that many of us walked in these doors with things that are swirling around. For some of us, Those things have been swirling around since um, while it was still dark this morning early. They'll be swirling around later, but Lord, would you please quiet our hearts and our minds? Would you show us that you're alive through these words, Lord, that that your spirit speaks to us through these words? I pray that it wouldn't just be stories and narratives about the people of Israel and their journey out of Egypt to the promised land, but these would be Uh, words that speak truth into our hearts and our minds. I pray that that they would be powerful enough for us to leave changed even. And so Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So if you remember, um, at Exodus 19, uh, Moses has brought the people, we are in 23, just to recap on 19. Uh, Moses has brought the people uh, out of Egypt, and the Lord has told him, he's promised him uh, at the burning bush that he would bring the people back to Mount Sinai and they would worship there. So through the Red Sea, through all the plagues, through the Amorites, through battles and all kinds of things, they now find themselves 
at the base of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, says it this way, that Moses brought the people there to meet God. It's, that's, that has become uh, just an interesting verse to me, that they would come to meet God. They saw his plagues and wonders. They saw the signs and miracles. They saw him split the sea, defeat the Amorites, all of the things, and yet they don't really know who God is yet. And so he brings them there in Exodus chapter 19, and he says to meet God. And and it's, he does something a little bit maybe unorthodox, maybe something that we wouldn't imagine. We might imagine uh, this moment where God comes to meet Israel. Israel is brought to meet God as this, just this moment where the music kind of fades in. Right? And it's just like this magical slow motion hug. Israel. You know, that's not at all what it is. The mountain quakes. There's lightning. There's thunder. It's literally a terrifying moment for Israel to be in the presence of God. And so when they come to meet God, their response is, Moses, you go, we'll stay here. You tell us what he says. And they begin to feel the awe-inspiring presence of God. And so then God starts to reveal his law to them in a way that shows them their boundaries with him and what righteousness is and what the life that he has for them is. And he's asking them the question, uh, will you trust me in the environment and in the place that I have placed you? Yesterday, uh, I was helping some friends um, uh, move a horse. We had a horse at our place for a couple weeks who we were holding and uh, his, his new home was ready. So I loaded him up in the trailer, took him over to this other farm and um, this horse is massive. He was, he's, he's literally a giant, 2,000 pounds of muscle, right? And so I bring him out of the trailer, and he's a little excited. And, uh, you know, the new owner's taken, put him, uh, they're leading him to this pasture, four-acre pasture, uh, two other horses in there. And they're leading him straight in. And, you know, I think to myself, this is, this is, this is not how I would introduce a horse to a new environment. That I would go slow. You know, typically we, we go on the other side of the fence. We, we do a lot of things. We typically, when you introduce a horse to a new environment, you literally walk them around their boundary. You show them every fence line, every corner. And in this moment, they take them in and they're, you know, getting ready to just let them go. And I think to myself, not my horse, not my pasture, you know. <clears throat> and so for the first 10 seconds, uh, it is fine. It's perfect. Like he meets his two new buddies and they're like, hey, this is cool. Let's run, you know. And so now you have this 2,000 pound mass of muscle running through this pasture and he does not know his boundaries. So he makes this right turn and I think, you know, he sees the fence. And I think, yeah, he doesn't see the fence. And then I think he starts to put the brakes on a little bit and it's a little wet. And I said, oh, he saw the fence. He's going to stop. And I think, no, he's not going to stop, you know. And he goes right through the fence. I mean, he tears it down. So now it's a corner piece of this fence. And so literally like four corners meet. So he's torn this fence down and this corner is now in shambles. And so now every other horse in every other pasture, they're just coming together. And it's one happy disaster, right? (laughs) I want you to know uh, that this was being videoed um, at the time. And Jana got it back and she's like you didn't say any words when this happened I was like because it's not my horse it's not my pasture you know (laughs) I feel like in this moment we literally see God walking Israel around their boundaries 
because he's about to, they're coming out of Egypt and then there's a new environment with together with him, all this kind of stuff. And he's walking them around, showing them the boundaries of who he is and the law that he has given them. It's to keep them in the environment that he's placed them. And through it all, he's asking them, will you trust me that this place is the place that you should be? With all of the boundaries, I think sometimes with all of our boundaries, right, we, we often inspect those boundaries. We look and maybe we sometimes run through the boundaries that God has placed in our life. And I think sometimes we're always asking the question, is this boundary really necessary? Is it really good for me? Is it something that would keep me out of danger rather than just keep me from living and doing what I want? And so I think in this way, the Lord, as he's giving Israel his law, he's, he's constantly asking them, will you trust me that this place is the place that you should be? And so we find this really in, 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 in a various types of laws in chapter 23. But I think even in those laws, the Lord is asking Israel three different times in three different ways, will you trust me? Will you trust me in this way? So let's read together. Uh, verse 1 through 9, he says this, You shall not bear a false report. And do not join your hand with a wicked man to be malicious, a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after the multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor should you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet an enemy's ox or its donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. And if you see a donkey of one who hates you lying helplessly under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. And do not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge. And do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. You should not take a bribe. For the bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not oppress the stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you are also strangers in Egypt. I think in this portion of the text, this passage, God is commanding Israel essentially to do the right thing, no matter what. He's pushing them and to say, do you trust my sense and my standard of righteousness? And will you obey me no matter what? He begins with this command against uh, bearing a false report. And what's interesting here is it's not the, the object. Uh, what's interesting is it's, it's not the object's report that it's being given. Meaning, uh, in other places in Scripture, he says, don't bear false witness. And he's speaking directly to this person or directly to this command that says, do not give a false report. But here the word means to pick up and to carry. It's as if someone is literally carrying the false report of someone else to someone else. He's saying, don't do this. Don't join your hand with a uh, wicked man as a malicious witness, he says. He combines those phrases. He says, don't partner with someone who's telling something that's not true in any way. Walk away. 
I think only because uh, this would be done because of a relationship with that person. And it doesn't seem like the person carrying the false report has anything to gain except joining hands with the one who does. I think because the law so much valued uh, the testimony of two witnesses against anyone accused of a crime, this was really big deal. This meant that if someone joined their hand with someone who was giving a malicious witness, who was giving a false testimony, who was telling a falsehood about someone else, if two people would join hands in this, that person could be tried in a court. They could be legally thrown into prison or even killed because someone joined hands with someone who was malicious. Think about this. Why would we do that? Well, why, would we, why would someone knowing this join hands with someone who's giving a false report in order to accuse someone else? Because of relationship. I mean, I, I value this relationship so much. This person is telling me to do this. They're asking me to do this. I don't want to say no. I'm going to have to do this. At what cost? For the cause of someone else's reputation or what their livelihood or their life. And the Lord understands that sometimes the human heart is capable of doing things like this. It's capable of joining hands with malicious witness. Why? For the sake of relationship. He says, no matter what's at stake, if your best friend is saying, please join with me in this. It's my word against theirs and I need your support. The Lord says, don't do it. There's right and there's wrong. Don't do it. Proverbs 19 says it this way, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. This is a boundary for God's people. I think the Lord gives two more examples that are painfully clear in this same genre of trust. He says this in, in 23.2, he says, you should not follow the masses in doing evil, nor testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. I think we could probably stay here for a second and cite multiple examples from our current society and culture where the masses are going after evil. Everyone's afraid to get canceled by saying what's true, and we've somehow outlawed the ideas that only God gets to define marriage. There are only two genders, and a woman's right to choose takes away a person's right to live. I think we all feel the pressure of what it may mean to speak up about some things. I have many friends who are now forced to put their preferred pronouns on an email. I have friends who are forced to take uh, sensitivity training so that they don't use certain words in their workplace. This is, this is our culture. Stanford University, uh, you might have heard, outlawed uh, over 100 different words this past year. I'm not sure what the consequences are, uh, but they, they have this whole list of things. Uh, here's just a few. You guys showed up on that. Uh, you can't say that anymore. Um, it's against their gender-based category. The, the school suggested that using folks or people, everyone instead, the issue with you guys, they say, is it lumps a group of people using a masculine language uh, and into gender binary groups, which don't include everyone, basically. Uh, American was deemed uh, an oppressive language. Uh, they said to pervert uh, U.S. citizen, uh, this term American often refers to people from the United States only, thereby insinuating that the U.S. is the only important country in the Americas, which has 42 countries. Now, other words uh, like Karen, if you're named Karen, you can't, I don't know what you do. Uh, 
they literally said you can't use the phrase white paper, white paper, uh, straight, submit, abusive relationship, prisoner, crazy, victim, walk in, or grandfather. These are all words that they've asked their staff not to use and students not to use as well. I think these battlegrounds that our culture is fighting on right now are battlegrounds that the church finds itself in. Battles for truth. Battles for what's right. And so we get to decide as a people, as a person who follows Christ, well, I choose to follow the masses and the perversion of sexuality. Well, I choose to follow the masses in what we call the right to choose. Well, I follow the masses in all of these ways that culture is saying, no, 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 we don't want to offend. We don't want to do, we want, everyone can do their own thing. Well, we follow the masses in this. Last week, our passage looked at a portion that prescribed the penalty if a woman was accidentally injured during an altercation where her baby was injured or killed in the process. And it demands a life for a life. You guys remember this. If you weren't here, it's, it's a fascinating passage where the, the, the Bible does not discriminate on how young this pregnancy was or how important this person was who accidentally, accidentally injured a woman so that she aborts her baby, right? It was a life for life. She could be three weeks pregnant. He could be, uh, you know, a, a charter member in the community. It doesn't matter. He says it's a life for a life. You may have seen that this week in the news, but there was a new bill that went uh, through in the House just this week. It's called the Born Alive Act. Did you see this? The Born Alive Act uh, says this, uh, the house was passing it in and they said if a, if a failed abortion think I want you to I want you to process this if a, if a woman goes in and she has a failed abortion but the baby the child is viable enough and in that failed abortion the baby lives is born alive now think about this for a second for that to be even possible the baby has to be 24 weeks in gestation, at least, around there. If the baby is born alive, the Born Alive Act said we will make it law that a doctor has to give life-saving measures to the baby who is on a table outside of its mother's womb. Did you hear this? 210 voted no. 210 voted still a mother's right to choose. And in that, they cited reproductive uh, health. This baby is now on a separate table away from its mother, and they said, we will choose to preserve the mother's right to say, I don't want that child to live. 210 voted that way. As, as a person, I didn't know we had 210 people in our world that had a moral compass like this. And yet we have 210 people in our House of Congress. What are we doing? What are we doing? But this is the stream. This is the river that we swim in. And for us as believers, we are constantly being faced to ask to swim upstream. 
Don't be sucked in by this current. Don't follow the masses when they say, well, you know, this is, this is the way of the world. This is the way of our culture. This is the way of whatever. This is the, my political party. This is whatever, whatever, whatever. No, we swim upstream from that. We say, no, 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 I will not follow the masses in this. I cannot follow the masses in this. We have to decide if we are going to choose what God says is righteous or we're going to be silent. There may be places, other places, where you find yourself face-to-face with the masses. There might be places in, in your work environment that ask you to cut corners. Don't choose the way of the masses. Students, you, you, your life will literally be, for the rest of your life, swimming upstream. You will have to choose to swim upstream and it will have to be conscious effort. The muscles of your heart spiritually will be fatigued and tired daily. Don't choose the way of the masses. Don't be fooled to think that if you don't fall in line, you'll miss your spot in life. Don't be fooled that you can't say something. Don't be fooled to think that you can't speak up. God always honors the righteous. He always honors the righteous. You might not see it right away. And for all we know, it could be heaven until you see your reward. But notice what Scripture says, Proverbs 13, 21. He said, adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. Samuel says, in 2 Samuel 22, he says, therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to righteousness, my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of before his eyes. I'm good before him, so I'm good Period. Then look at this third example in this same genre. He says this in 23.3, Nor shall you be a partial, partial to a poor man in his dispute. This is fascinating to me, this, this command. God says that we should have such a dedication to truth and what's right that no one gets any kind of partiality simply because we feel sorry for them. Think about this. He says, just because you feel sorry for them, just because their circumstance is bleak, that does not change what's right and what's wrong. When you look at them and your heart feels sorry for them, it doesn't change truth. He says, don't be partial to a a, a poor man in their dispute. If there's a dispute, right is right. Truth is truth. No matter if a person has been through, no matter what their current circumstance is, he says that we cannot be partial to someone against what's right just because we feel sorry for them. This isn't the way of the Lord, he says. Psalms 37, 16 says it this way, Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. 
So I think as the Lord is leading Israel around and showing them this boundary, this fence line of what is right, what is true, what is good, he's asking them this question. He says, do you trust him and his standard for righteousness? God is leading his people around and he's asking his children, God asks his children, do you trust him and his standard for righteousness that goes above and beyond every other relationship in this world? every other commitment in this world and every river and every stream that we have to swim against the current? Do you trust him and his standard for righteousness? He's going to ask the second question too, and I'm going to just ask it first, and then we're going to go move on to this. And he asks his children to trust him and to provide what they need. God asks his children to trust him and provide what they need. In the, in the next section of this chapter, uh, we see some laws regarding Sabbath and festivals. So notice what he says. He says, You shall sow the land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest. Rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. And you are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you should cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. So he he reiterates this law of the Sabbath. And this was kind of an altogether different way of looking and approaching work for the Israelites. Think about it this way. They were slaves for 400 years in Egypt, right? And remember when Moses came on the scene and he started to make a little uh, noise, uh, cause some waves, uh, Pharaoh said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to impress the people even harder. We're going to take away their supplies that they need to make the bricks that we're commanding them to uh, make so that they can build the buildings we're commanding them to build. Like the whole work ethic there was just oppression. And so they grew up in this environment. So they could probably go one of two ways, right? They could either continue Continue in that and just be absolutely addicted to work and what they can accomplish, never rest, or they could go the rest of the way and say, we've had 400 years of absolute misery and work. We're going to take a, a two-decade vacation. We're going to do nothing. Right? And so the Lord says, no, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to approach work. Work is good. And so I'm going to ask you to work six days, and then I'm going to ask everyone to take that seventh and rest and reflect. I'm going to ask you to take a Sabbath so that you can remember and trust me that even when you're not working, I will provide for you. He goes in into the land as well to farming, and he, and he gives this command to take six years on a piece of land and let it lay fallow. Don't plant anything. Don't till it on the seventh year. And it's difficult to imagine that this law would envision a system that would be a, a total pause and crop farming, right? Like Israel could not sustain that kind of life uh, with their humans or cattle. Um, they also would need eggs just like we do today, right? 
And it seems like the law does not uh, call for any uh, like pause of animal farming either. Like they couldn't just let their animals go into the desert for a year and not care for them. This wasn't a pause on work. This was a pause on land, on what that land was and what they were doing. They were letting it rest and the Lord was building in them a principle. Also, all land was not on the same seven year rotation. Right, so you would plant this crop, this field, six years, and then on the seventh you would let that rest. So it wasn't as if for six years you just hoarded a bunch of stuff and on the seventh you didn't do anything at all. The Lord was teaching them what it means to work and to rest, to work and to rest, to work and to rest. And he's building this principle in with the land because that's easier to understand than it is for our hearts. So he says, just like you'll do on the land every six years, on the week, you will do this for yourselves. Also, I think that it's really important uh, to note that in this law, people are most important. Animals come next, and plants follow that. There's an order, he says. Verse 13, he says, Now concerning everything which I've said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. And then he talks about three festivals. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me, and you should observe the feast of unleavened bread. And for seven days you're to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. And at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also, you should observe the feast of the harvest and the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also, the feast of the end gathering and at the end of the year when you gather the fruit of your labors from the field, three times a year your male should appear before the Lord. Verse 18. And you should not offer the blood of my sacrifice with unleavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight into the morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. And you're not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. That's a side piece we'll deal with in a second. So there's three festivals that the Lord gives to Israel at this moment. The first is a festival in the year named the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read about this as they literally, the Lord commanded them to take all the unleavened out and they observed the Passover. The initial uh, feast is recounted in chapters 11 through 13. It was observed in 12 and, uh, and 13. And so the second feast is what we call the Feast of the Harvest. Here it's known as Feast of the Weeks, and often it's called the Feast of Pentecost. It's the same feast uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's celebrated seven weeks or 50 days after the Passover. And when the main grain harvest, especially the wheat harvest, was completed, the Israelites were expected to present God with a grain or cereal harvest uh, from the loaves of salted regular leavened bread, as well as a variety of animal sacrifices and whatever free will offerings they were bringing. The third feast is called the Feast of the End Gathering. It's also known as the Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, or the Succoth. Uh, described as well in Leviticus 23, if you want to cross-reference that, Deuteronomy 16 talks about it as well. And it's the feast that coincided with the general fall harvest. It's when they would harvest 
all of their crops and bring in everything that they had sown uh, through the growth. Uh, this was not only various crops, uh, grain crops, but also tree and vine crops, olives and grapes. It was followed by five days of atonement where they would come and build uh, temporary field huts called tabernacles. And what fascinates me about all of these feasts is that God would call them away from work for a second, even after work, after harvest, and say, I want you to pause and remember that I gave you all of it. And he asks them to remember in a way that's, that's strange to me. He asks them to remember by bringing a sacrifice of their first fruits to him. This is painful for me as a like, you know, part-time farmer, hobbyist. We grow gardens and animals and all the things. We put all this work in. In February, we'll start seeding little seeds that will grow in a little small greenhouse, and then we'll plant those to bigger pots and plant those to bigger pots and plant those, and eventually they go into the ground, right? And then when they go into the ground, we go out there and we weed and we till and all the things. And then at some point, you see the first fruit. It takes months to get to this first fruit. So much work. And your heart literally bursts with joy when you see that first tomato, the first, like something that you can pick off and eat. And the Lord says, man, that is so good. And it also belongs to me. Think about this too. It's not a kind of sacrifice which would enable the people of Israel or God to build something with. He's not asking them to bring cypress trees so that they can build a, an anort temple. Temple At this moment, he'll see this later on in the text, he asked them to, to bring silver and gold so that they can build the temple and the tabernacle and all the things. But here, these feasts that they would observe every single year, they're not like necessarily usable goods. The, the priests can't use them to buy a temple with, to, do, like, to, to, to build furniture, like a, a memorial. It, in our eyes, when we bring the first fruits of that wheat harvest, of the tomato, of the lamb, in our eyes, it's, it's wasted. What does God need this for? Like, it's literally, I'm going to bring it, and it's going to wither and die. Listen, my family's hungry. Like, I can... If it's going to die anyway, I'll, you know, all the time there's, there's wheat that doesn't necessarily look that great. There's tomatoes that are bitten with, with bugs and insects. It's going to die anyway. Isn't it fascinating that what the Lord asks us to bring, he doesn't need? Isn't that fascinating? What the Lord asks us to bring, he doesn't need. He asks us to bring a sacrifice, and he asks for what he calls here, that even Jesus would reiterate later on in the New Testament, what he calls first fruits. It's very interesting that it's not that he's asking for what's left. He says, would you, when everything seems very volatile, think about this, you have the first fruits that come up, and your heart bursts with joy. So you take those, and you, you literally give those away. 
and you trust that like plagues, insects, you trust that it's going to rain so that the other fruit comes out. I mean, everything is still untold. The story of your harvest is still untold while he's asking for your first fruits. This is a principle that God has given to us, not because he needs it, but because we do. And I see him bringing us around the pasture, showing us the fence line, and this fence line is called, do you trust me with what you need? Do you trust me to provide what he says, what you need? The first fruits is very interesting to me. I heard uh, a pastor say it this one time, you know, he, he took out like, you know, like $10 bills. He said, you know, it, it works like this, where it's like first fruits is not this. And so he said, you know, he, he counted like all the different things that he, that his family needed, you know, like this is mortgage, you know, this is car payment, this is boom, boom, this is this, then it's this. And it's like, all of our bills are paid. Oh, like, look, what's left? He's like, I got something left. That's really good. He says, that's, this is, this is his words, and it, it crushed me. He goes, that's not a tithe, that's a tip. It's tipping him for his service. Oh, you've given me all these things. Right? He said, and if you flip that, and you say, God, I don't know what this month has in store. And we've been responsible, we've budgeted, we've done all these things. Like, I'm going to trust you with the first fruits. He said, that starts to transform our hearts. It starts to transform our hearts in a way that says, I trust you to provide what I need. I trust you to provide everything we need. And he's asking his people, will you trust me? Will you trust me when Egypt sounds so good? Will you trust me when I've asked you to walk farther and you're still thirsty? Will you trust me when you're hungry? Will you trust me when I'm asking you to go up against armies that are greater than yours? Will you trust me to provide for all of your needs? Do you trust me? As we move on, Exodus 23, verse 20, we get to this kind of like final moment where he's final fence line, I would say, and he says this, uh, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you. So, uh, so he's kind of given us three different categories, really. At first, it's talking about our relationship to one another and dedication to righteousness over relationship. Then he moves on to what we have, right? Like what we call our own. And he says, will you honor me and believe me and trust me to provide for what you need? Right? And then he's going to ask the question, will you trust me in where I tell you to go? Notice this. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you. Oh, let me pause real quick because the whole like boil uh, your young goat in the mother's milk. All right. Uh, this thing about this really quick. It's, it's not just like a, God is not giving a prohibition on how they cook things. Think about this really quickly. It, there's, a, like a, there's a demented, really demented, perverted thing that's happening here where a pagan nation, the Philistines, 
would take what was meant to be life for the young, right? Its own mother's milk. And they would boil it in it. It wasn't just a, hey, let's boil it in milk. It was a, this idol sacrifice of really like almost like a child sacrifice. Like I'm going to sacrifice this in what was meant to bring life will bring death. Right. And so that was a customary practice of pagan nations of sacrifice. And so the Lord was giving a prohibition against that as they move into these other nations, as they move into these other places, they're going to see these things happening. And the scripture doesn't give us like uh, the, the specifics. I don't know if they saw that already and they were starting to practice that. But I think the Lord understands how uh, vulnerable they are to other false gods and stories and like all the other ways of false worship. And so he gives this prohibition. Moving on. So behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared for you. So he's going to, he says, I'm going to take you into some places that, that you're going to need extra protection. And be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, since my name is in him. A lot of theologians uh, believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is a story that we haven't heard very often, where the angel of the Lord goes before Israel and commands them as they're going into these pagan nations. And it says, and my name is in him. It's kind of like the only clue that we have that this could be. It might not be. It could be. Regardless, it's a messenger of God. He says, but if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Prezocytes, uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. God lists all the nations that hate Israel, that have stronger armies. Think about this. When Israel left Egypt, they have no weapons. They have no weapons of war. They, they weren't allowed to be soldiers. Egypt would not allow them to have any kind of weapons lest they rise up against Egypt and overtake them. They come out of Egypt. Some theologians believe that when Israel, Egypt's army was drowned in the Red Sea, Israel gained some weapons and different things like that at this moment. But I just find it interesting that the Lord doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to take you into some places that are going to be a little overwhelming. He literally specifically names all the nations that hate them and that are stronger than them. Notice this. And he says this, and I will completely destroy them. He says, I'm going to go before you. And you shall not worship their gods nor serve them, nor according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars and pieces. And you're not going to go around them. I'm going to command you to go through them. And all of the ways that they worship false gods, we're going to burn it to the ground, he says. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove the sickness from your midst, and there shall not be one miscarrying or barren in your land, and I will fill the number of your days, and I'll send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all of the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
And I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanite, the Hittites before you. What's interesting is there's other places. I don't have time to reference it today, but there's other places where this this hornet is is mentioned uh, as this tool. And uh, most often the better translation is not plural, but a singular, the hornet. It's it's some theologians transfer it as like the hornet, like as in like there's the the. Uh, genre or whatever, and it's a lot of, like it's a plague, right, that comes before him. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know in Joshua, we see again in Joshua chapter 2, I believe, that it's the hornet goes before them and literally wipes out and drives out the kings Magog and Gog, and literally Israel just walks into the land. We see this happening to where he goes before them in a way that's completely, un, un, like, we don't understand he says, I'll drive them out before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year so that the land may not become desolate and the, beats, and the beasts of the field become too numerous from you. This is interesting to me because he says, if I drove them all out, the land would be literally, un, you would have to retill it and all that kind of stuff. What I'm going to do is I'm going to drive them out little by little so that they till your gardens for you. Think about the, the, just what the goodness of God here. He says, I'll drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And I'll fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. And you shall make no covenant with their gods and they shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will become a snare to you. Lord speaking now, and we see later, because you have served their gods, it was a snare to you. They fall into these traps. They don't believe what God has called them to, but God is asking his children to trust that he will go before them. He's trusting that they, that he will go before them. I'm going to reference one place in Joshua chapter 2. If you remember this, the spies went in, two of them met with Rahab, and this is what she says before, you remember the land, they, they go in and uh, the, the spies go in and they're trying to figure out how they're going to take this massive uh, place uh, as, as an army that is not sufficient to do so. And this is what Rahab says. Now before they lay down, she came up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the terror that of you that has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. There's only two of them there. Literally, they are dreading Israel coming. Why? They have the, the fortress. They have the weapons. They, have all the, like, they are well uh, equipped to fight Israel, but not the God of Israel. She says, the Lord has already given you the land. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. And when he came out to Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the Shion and Gog, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. In a pagan nation, she looks and says, your God has has already gone before you. We have nothing. She's like, we, we've heard the stories. 
And Israel is back at camp saying, are you sure, God, you're going to do this? What are we going to do? Like, if we're going to go and follow you? Like, like total, like, just believe what God has said. He has promised, I will go before you. So you march into the land. I think like Israel, we, we have to ask this question. Do we trust that when we are in the, the center of God's will, that he is going before us. Do you trust that? you trust when God is moving your heart in a direction into a place, into a people, or whatever it might be? Do you trust that when God is pushing you in this way, do you trust? I mean, does your mind just spin with all the but whatabouts? Or do you just say, Lord, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work and how this is going to happen, but I trust your spirit in me and I trust your promise to me that you will not lead me in a place that you have not gone. He will not lead us to a place that he has not gone. The problem is sometimes is when we get ahead of God, we find ourselves in places that he has not gone. When we go off pridefully to the sides and different places where he is not there, he says, I'm, I'm right here, and as long as you're here, then I'm, behind, like, I'm, I'm going before you. But do we really believe that God is going before us? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy in every way. Sometimes I, I look at these stories and I just think, man, why? Why do we have to march around Jericho seven times, seven days? If the walls could tumble at day seven, couldn't they have tumbled before we came? Why? Some things we don't understand. And sometimes the Lord just wants us to see him move in miraculous ways. Why, when we feel like the Lord is moving us in a spot, do we come to a spot and say, oh, this is a dead end. This is, this is difficult. There's struggle. There's uh, pain. There's suffering. In the place that God has brought me to, why? Because he wants us to see him work. To wait on him to watch and to see him do what he promised he would do. There's this fascinating song. You've probably sung it before. I, I love it. It's a hymn. Uh, and a fascinating story behind it, too, that I won't share today, but it's uh, a, a hymn that it says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." You guys know this song? Man, I love this song. Listen to the words. Just listen to this song. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know that's what the thus saith the Lord. And then the chorus says, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Then there's this other verse. It says, I'm so glad I've learned to trust him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, I know that he is with me and he will be with me till the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. 
Oh, for grace to trust him more. Sing this with me, this last chorus. Jesus, Jesus, how I 